This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, here's the thing. I tried to get canceled two weeks in a row, but I'm still here. Guys, aren't you just so excited? We made it to the third part of the Race in America series, and guys, I got one more shot at it. I've got one more shot at the title, and I'm going to try my absolute level best to make so many people angry in this episode. I'm kidding. I'm getting a little bit ridiculous. The thing is with these last two episodes is I've been very, very pleased with the feedback that we've gotten from you all, uh, that this content has been helpful for you. And the reason why I feel like I'm hearing that and the feedback that I've gotten from some people is a lot of pastors, which is even during times of COVID, when a lot of you guys aren't even going physically to church, you're still turning to your pastors to figure out what to think about things. You're not really getting this content from them. So if you follow a lot of politicians or a lot of political theorists or, you know, political commentators, you may get some of this. If you, you know, read the opinion pieces or op-eds in uh, different newspapers, you're perhaps going to get this. But the big thing that's so interesting is no one's really talking about this in any level of depth. And so a lot of guys are kind of stuck like, well, here's some of the thoughts I think, but is this wrong? Or, you know, is this factually incorrect? Or, you know, uh, what about if this opinion is going to fill in on that opinion? But that's the thing, guys, is today we're, we're going to wrap up and we're going to talk about how we reconcile. Okay. We're going to talk about, you know, we talked about what happened. We talked about what's really going on. And now we're really going to talk about how we reconcile. But I just got to urge you, You've got to listen to the other two episodes. You have to listen to episode 142 and episode 143 because these are all built to, you know, built on the backs of one another. And so you can't really listen to episode two without listening to episode one. And you can't really listen to this episode without listening to the first two. So please stop what you're doing. If you've made your way to episode 144, go back to episodes, start there. You know, it's a decent chunk of content. So you're going to have to get some time for that. Again, listen to it at one and a half or two times speed if you can stand it so that you can get that content in. But just kind of give you a little bit of an idea of where we've gone. This isn't going to be a full on recap of everything we've done uh, in the first two sessions so far. But the first one, we talked about what happened. We talked about what happened to George Floyd. We talked about the Rayshard Brooks situation. And we certainly talked about how those two situations are very different and how a lot of different things go into those situations and aren't really be talk, being talked about in a super accurate way. Um, and in last week's episode, I think I recapped and I said that there were three foundational thoughts, but then I listed six. So, but there were six foundational thoughts that, you know, might make people angry to hear, but you need to hear. And those were that America is not a racist country. The second is the Declaration of Independence was an abolitionist document. The third is that there's no such thing as systemic racism in modern day United States. The fourth is there are zero countries on the planet that are devoid of racist people. The fifth is there's no such thing as reverse racism. There's just racism. And the last one was there are not two Americas, basically talking about people that say, hey, there's white America and there's black America and they're not the same. That is silly. That doesn't make any sense. But last week's episode, we talked about what's really going on. And we talked about how right now in our current context, you can't just not be racist. You have to be anti-racist. It's it's a whole different level of what you have to be in order to be inside the Overton window or enabled to be you know accepted in modern day culture. But then we went on a deep dive into what Black Lives Matter, the organization is versus what, you know, obviously what the Black Lives Matter sentence means. Then we got into what all lives matter means. And then also all Black Lives Matter. We talked about abortion. We talked about a lot of different things that the Black Lives Matter organization, the Marxist developed organization, they don't want us to to look at all Black Lives Mattering because if all Black Lives Matter, then they have to kind of look at themselves in the mirror. But then also we did talk about Marxism. We talked about how Marxism and the things that he was thinking and writing in the 1800s have given rise to cultural Marxism, intersectionality, critical race theory and how that's kind of informing the things that we're seeing now in this kind of postmodern world that we live. And the big point of that podcast was the pagan atheistic left. So the political left, they're trying to destroy America from within. 
And that, that, that doesn't even sound, you know, whenever you hear that, someone say something like that, it sounds a little bit tinfoil hatty. Like, ah, really? Is that really what's happening? I bet George Soros is behind it. But the thing is, is where there's smoke, there's fire. And they're literally saying it out loud. Again, people like Representative Ilhan Omar, which by the way, any of you listening in Minnesota, what is wrong with y'all? How in the world does someone like that get elected to high office in the United States? That's just crazy to me. But it's this entire worldview that requires the destruction of what we're seeing around us currently in order to rise up and have this new perfect utopian structure, which, you know, obviously isn't realistic. And what we ended there, uh, that episode at the end was the top 10 unintended slash intended consequences of all this unrest and destruction and disintegration. And the unintended is basically, if you're thinking like these are unintended consequences, you're probably thinking like a sane person and the intended consequences a little bit more on the tinfoil hat side. But those 10 very quickly were people that don't know anything about policing will be creating new and improved policing standards and practices and new and improved is in uh, scare quotes, by the way. Number two, the cycle of bad cop hiring because good people don't want to be cops now is going to basically be perpetuated in the future. Third is that crime, especially crime that affects people of color the most is skyrocketing across the United States and that will continue as police stand down or act actively kept from standing up. The fourth is real racism. Racism might actually increase. The fifth is obvious or oblivious. People will erroneously believe that they can appease the mob. The sixth is that people that aren't ready for retribution are poking the wrong bears. Seven, fake racism claims and hate crimes are about to go through the roof. You know, that's true. Number eight, the government run public schools will stop teaching our children about our great forefathers out of fear of being branded as a racist. The ninth is hating America will become a billion dollar industry. Perhaps it already has been uh, created one or become one. And the last one is empathy filled Christians are buying this Marxist critical race theory and intersectionality nonsense hook, line and sinker, and they're calling it the gospel. So we're going to spend a little bit more time uh, going into that today. But for today's episode overall, it's basically, so what in the world do we do now? Great, Kyle, you spent the last, you know, the last two episodes, that's, you know, a couple hours, two and a half hours worth of content telling us what's going on, what's really going on. But now we got to get down to brass tacks. What do we do? What do we do with that information? Great. You've given us an education. And again, like I've told you in every episode so far, I'm not even getting into all the different ancillary things, the, the different tertiary things that are a part of what we're seeing here, because there's just way too much to cover. Too many things have happened. But now we're just stuck with the question, which is how do we reconcile? You know, what do we do? As well-meaning Christians, as men of God, as, you know, other lions, sub-lions in the tribe of Judah, like what do we do at this point? And so guys, again, I, I'm, I'm limited in my ability to be able to uh, create content and I'm only as, as big as my intellect and what God allows me to say, but the best way that I could possibly think of how to basically bring all this to a crescendo or wrap this whole thing up is to bring you contrary ideas, but do that at the same time. So essentially I've got a lot of statements I'm going to go through here, maybe a couple dozen or so that are essentially, we should not do this, but what we should do is this kind of a situation. Okay. And guys, these aren't in any particular order. I mean, I, I kind of moved some stuff around after I kind of got my thoughts down because again, I've spent the last, you know, two plus months now only really thinking about this and how I'm going to bring this content to you in a way that is going to be meaningful and expedient for you to be able to use. And so I'm just going to flow with them and they're all on the macro subject of race in America, but they are going to do deep dives into different areas. So let's just go ahead and launch in. The first one here is we should not assume that we can fix racism. We should, however, realize we are up against a sin nature that can only be cleansed by God. One of the interesting things of what I'm seeing from people on the political left or people that are, you know, 
individuals that are screaming for racial justice or for us to you know level the playing field on equality for all and the Black Lives Matter organization is I, I think that most of them cognitively believe that they can fix racism, that, that they can eradicate racism, that all of a sudden they will be able to make racism a thing of the past. You've even heard guys like Joe Rogan, which a lot of you guys are fans of, and I'm a fan of as well. He's, ta- he's talked about, you know, in the future, he talks about robots and how we're just advanced apes and maybe we're going to go backwards in evolution. He's talked about all these different things. But at the same time, he's saying like, you know, in the future, whenever we don't have any racism, dot, dot, dot. And it's just the fact that these people don't get it. These are people that come from a secular worldview, from a pagan worldview, and they think that we can progress beyond racism. And it's such a silly thought that if these people were to actually sit down and think about that, they have to realize that there is a nature inside of human beings that, that can't be helped. There's a sin nature, uh, the post-Genesis 3 world that, that, you know, that welcomed sin into the world. And I thought that this was great. I don't remember who said this, but there was a pastor that basically was getting up saying that you're born with sin nature. And apparently some mother got up and said, are you saying my two-year-old or my three-year-old is, you know, uh, they're sinful and they're bad and all these different things. And the person basically, she, you know, the woman at that point is a heckler, but the guy just handled the situation by saying, ma'am, did you have to, to teach your kid to interrupt you? Ma'am, did, did someone have to teach your kid to steal toys? To, to be selfish. And, and of course, at that point, you understand that, that there is no fixing that sin nature by, by the standards that the people are thinking, right? You have to have the intercession of God. Like that's something that absolutely 100% has to happen. That's not something that you can, you can take care of otherwise. And so again, we should not assume that we can fix racism. We should realize we are up against a sin nature that can only be cleansed by a good, loving creator God. The next one is we should not ever apologize to the mob. We should attempt to educate them, but if that doesn't work, we must destroy their arguments and preferably publicly. Again, I talked about this in the last episode. There are people that are well-meaning people that are just weak-minded and weak-willed, and they don't understand that the mob doesn't care if you apologize. You can never apologize loud enough. You can never bow low enough. You can never do any of those things. You will not receive retribution. You will not receive grace. You will not receive forgiveness. But the thing about it is, is most of these people in the mob, they're people, right? Some of these people, I wouldn't say that the majority of the people that are in these mobs are so on the, on the extreme side of be, of being a zealot that they're unable to be reasoned with. Now there certainly are some, and obviously just go to YouTube and you will see plenty of that. Just go to any time a, a conservative speaker is invited to a college campus or, you know, anything that we saw on Chaz Chop, all those different things. A lot of these people just lack education. You know, I saw a, an unbelievable stat and I can't, uh, I can't remember it exactly off the top of my head, so I don't want to uh, say it incorrectly, but basically the generation, like basically if you're in your thirties or forties, what you think about America and what teenagers in early twenties people think about right now in terms of what they think about America, it's getting so much worse because these people in the public school systems and in their colleges, they're being steeped in this, this ridiculous version of history of American history that we were just basically, we're a racist nation. History started in 1619, you know, not at 1776. Like it's those types of things. And the thing about it is, is most of these people just need a real education. And that's one thing for me as a father, now that I'm a father, I'm already thinking about and trying to figure out which books that I'm going to make sure that the kid reads in which documentaries we watch and which movies that we watch that are going to teach them about the founding fathers and teach them everything about the founding fathers, teach them about the, about American history, teach them about world war two and the things that we were able to do, the things that we were able to accomplish as a country that made us so great, right? 
But the thing about it is, is as I'll repeat it here now, we should not ever apologize to the mob. We should attempt to educate them, but if that doesn't work, we have to destroy their arguments, preferably publicly. We need people to see that their arguments cannot stand on their own merits. The next one here is that we should not provide so-called reparations to black people in the United States, but we should be realistic about our ability to right wrongs. Okay, so here's the thing. Black Lives Matter and many other groups think that the United States should provide reparations to all black people in America, even those that are not descendants of African slaves brought over to the United States. I didn't make that up. That is something that they actually believe. So if you're Jamaican and you're in the United States and you weren't part of the African slave trade, no one in your ancestry was, doesn't matter. You get reparations. Nigerians that are over here now, doesn't matter. Aborigines that look black, doesn't matter. You, you all get reparations. The problem, the big problem here with any person or group that fights for reparations, it's immediately when you ask them how it will work. When, when you're trying to get down to the specifics and saying, hey, how is this going to work in, in real life? How is this going to work in practice? Okay, because there are things that you must demand that pro-reparations people, people making that argument, you must demand that they explain these things. And they're not in any particular order, but here's a lot of questions that I've wondered about the reparations argument that no one can seem to answer. One, do all white people, no matter what, have to pay the reparations? And on the same thing, do all black people, no matter what, get to receive reparations? Okay, got to answer that. Also, what is an appropriate amount to pay each black person? You know, what's an amount of money or amount of land or capital or, or investment? What's the, what's the right amount to pay each black person? Another one, how long will the reparations be paid out for? Will the payments continue with each successive generation of black people that are born in the United States? Will it just continue ad infinitum? Or is it something that there's an end date for? You got to answer that. The next one is, will whites have to pay a set amount to black people? Or will that change based on the net worth of the white person or the black person? Does the fact that they're, you know, poor or, you know, well off, does that mean anything? Next one, if a black person in America is not a descendant of a slave, do they get reparations? Got to make sure you answer that one. Next one, if a white person can prove that no one in their family tree ever owned an African slave in America, do they still owe reparations? Got to have some sort of an idea of that. The next one is, will the white side of any white, black, interracial married couple owe the black side of the white, black, interracial married couple reparations? You know, I, I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago that, that my mom is married to a black guy. Does she owe him reparations? Like, does she just like walk it across the house and, and hand it to him while he's sitting in the chair? Another one is this, is what if you are just part black? Do you get partial reparations? And what if you are just part white? Do you only pay partial reparations? What about blacks that are descendants of black slave owners? Yeah, there were black slave, slave owners in the United States and in Africa. What if they're descendants of those people? You know, what kind of reparations do they owe or will they receive? What about blacks that are descendants of black slave traders? That's something a lot of people don't like to talk about, but there were a lot of people that were going and rounding up, you know, there were African tribes that were rounding up members of rival tribes and selling them to white people and sending them off into the slave trade, right? They were, they were getting rich off of creating slaves out of someone that looked like them, that had the same amount of melanin as them. You know, what do we do with those people? The descendants of those people, rather. What about this? Will rich black people still be entitled to reparations? So do, do I have to give reparations to Oprah? To Michael Jordan, Kanye West, Will Smith? Do, do I owe reparations to these people? 
Here's another one. Will poor whites, you know, the ones that are with all that melanin privilege, all that white privilege, do they still have to pay reparations? You know, someone that's literally below the poverty line, but they're white, do they have to pay reparations regardless? And here, here's another one is, can the reparations extend out beyond the African slave trade in America? Because again, we have to take this to its logical conclusion. Can it extend out beyond that? So here's the thing. Here's a great question for me. Since I'm Choctaw Indian, I have Choctaw Indian uh, blood in my veins. Can I demand reparations from the tribes that enslaved my ancestors? And could they ask the same of me? Can all those other nations that Choctaws made slaves of, can they come to the Choctaw nation of which I'm a part and ask for reparations? Here's the other thing. What about if my Choctaw ancestors participated in chattel slavery in the American South? Do I have to like pay double reparations? Because I was enslaved by other tribes. You know, my people were enslaved by other tribes. uh, And also we were part of that in the American South where we also had black slaves. Is that like double bad? I mean, here's the other thing. Since I'm Irish, a lot of me is Irish. Can I demand reparations from England? Now, it's a dubious point and it's a dubious claim that the Irish were enslaved by the English. You know, there's there's evidence that goes both ways. Some look at it as a conspiracy theory. But let's even take it back all the way to Celtic times. At some point in my family tree, because I'm, I'm mainly an Irish and Scottish mutt, my people were taken slave by somebody. Can I figure out who those somebodies were and go to those countries and get my reparations? And guys, I really could keep going, but I'll save you. Do you see the problem? The reparations argument is just for show, you guys. It's for posturing. Like, it could never work in real life. Even people like ta Coates, like, he, he's written this entire, you know, uh, book or pamphlet on, on reparations. And then when it gets to the end, when it's like, can we actually do this? He's like, yeah, I don't really think so. I don't really know how we would actually make that happen. It's like, what exactly are we talking about then? Like, like, why are we having this discussion? So it's disingenuous, but I do like, uh, this was a few weeks ago, Jeff Durbin was pointing this out on his podcast, that what if white Americans said to Japanese Americans, so current Japanese Americans, if we said to them that we wanted them to kneel before us and apologize for the past sins, because some of their ancestors may have been involved in World War II, World War II and may have tried and or did kill white American soldiers. What if we demanded that of Japanese Americans? Just think about that. That sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? Well, then tell me how that is fundamentally different than a black person telling a white person that they owe them reparations in 2020. Because here's the thing, guys, in case you needed this spoiler alert, I have never personally owned slaves ever. I know it might seem incredibly surprising with all my white privilege, but I've never owned a slave in my entire life. No one in my family tree that I've ever met has owned a slave. And no one in my family tree has ever owned an African slave in America. I can pretty much guarantee it. Again, Irish and Choctaw Indian. I don't owe you crap. I don't know anybody anything. Okay? Now, there are people that are on the other side of this argument that says, well, scripture provides us a biblical basis for reparations, so we need reparations. You're right and you're wrong. Because guys, if you go to Exodus and Leviticus, so Exodus 21 verses 33 through 36, and then it continues in uh, uh, chapter 22 verses 1 through 15, it talks about reparations in Leviticus uh, chapter 5 verses 14 through 19, it talks about reparations as well. But here's the big key. 
The big key about people making that argument is the Bible does describe reparations, but specifically they describe reparations or restitution and how it's to be paid to a specific person, the person who was wronged, the person who is owed restitution, who's owed reparations. Now, there are some more liberal scholars, biblical scholars that argue that you could actually broaden that out to include a specific group. But even then, the reparations argument doesn't work because it would be talking about a specific group of people that was wronged. Because you know what I can't do as a white person, even if I had all the guilt in the world in my heart over American uh, slavery and all those different things. And if we could prove that actually, you know, my great, great, great grandfather was the biggest slave owner in Georgia or whatever the situation may be. Even then, I do not owe reparations to anybody because I am not the one that sinned. You know, would I feel this tremendous desire to, you know, try to find descendants of slaves that my great, great, great grandfather owned and, and talk to them about that and, and say how, I, how I'm sorry that that happened to them and all those different things. But, but I don't owe them anything because I can't square that circle for them. I can't pay that debt. So again, the reparations argument is absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. Again, we should not provide so-called reparations to black people in the United States or anywhere, but what we should do is be realistic about our ability to right wrongs. And here's the thing, guys, is we can't really right wrongs that happened in the past from our ancestors that we never met and probably don't even know their names. So next one here is we should not allow people to treat the government as daddy, and we should demand that fathers be fathers. So here's the thing, guys. Every sociological study that I've ever seen that I've ever read about the family comes to the exact same conclusion. All of them do. Children do the best in homes where both mom and dad are present. And you can dig down and say, well, what if mom and dad don't really love each other? What if they don't have sex a lot? And what if they don't have like a very uh, outwardly loving relationship? And what if they fight all? Nope, none of that matters. Oh, it does matter. Don't, don't misunderstand me. It does matter. But just the fact that a child grows up in a home where mom and dad are both present, that child has a tremendously high, uh, higher uh, ability to, to be resilient, the ability to do well in school, to not drop out, to, to not be a problem child. It's incredible. But the reality is, is in the United States, almost 75%, three out of four black children in the United States are born out of wedlock. And then about 60% of black children live in a home without mom and dad present. It's usually just mom. That is not a recipe for success at all because single motherhood is encouraged by the United States government and it's highly, highly subsidized in the black communities. So uh, I read this great article. I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes here, but according to Robert Rector at the Heritage Foundation, I'll just go ahead and read this quote. Throughout U.S. history, marriage was the norm. Prior to the mid-1960s, nearly all children were born to married couples. When the war on poverty began in 1964, only 7% of children were born to unmarried women. However, over the next four and a half decades, the share of non-marital births exploded. In 2013, 41% of all children born in the United States were born outside of marriage, unquote. It went from 7% to just over four decades later to 41%, almost half. Guys, there's this false narrative that in the black community, fathers aren't around because they've, they've been thrown in jail, right? You know, uh, we have the war on drugs and that is disproportionately targeting black people and, and those types of things. But that argument is very, very misleading, right? 
because the overwhelming majority of black fathers are not in jail. Just statistically speaking, I'm not even talking about sociology at this point, just statistically speaking, the overwhelming majority of black fathers are in jail. They're just not in the home with the children. They're gone. They're somewhere else. They've abdicated their responsibility as a father. And the, the interesting thing here is, again, you're, you're hearing me say this, and as I've admitted to you before, because I feel like I have to, quote, admit it to people now, I'm a white guy. And so this sounds like, oh, how dare you talk about that community? How dare you do all these different things? The funny thing is, is the same people that would fight against the words that I'm saying say the same thing to black people that say it. When a conservative, a black conservative, or when a, you know, a black pastor or something like that comes up and basically says these things, they're, they're treated, they're, they're called an Uncle Tom, they're, they're called, you know, uh, a coon, they're, they're called all these horrific names because they're just saying like, hey, black dads, you need to be in the home. If you got her pregnant, you need to marry her. Like that, that's like a crazy thing to say in 2020. But when all the data points to that being to what's best for the kid, then we're not going to have as many kids that get into gangs. That's just statistics. We're not going to have as many kids that are dropping out of high school or not going to college. It's just statistics. We're not going to have as many kids getting into trouble and going to jail in their late teens or early twenties. It's just statistics. Like I'm not appealing to any other type of argument aside from the one that I can see right in front of me in black and white, right? It's just right there in front of me. So we should not allow people to treat the government as daddy, but we should demand that fathers be fathers. Again, easier said than done because we're, we're 40 years down the road in terms of this experiment in uh, welfare and all these different things with single motherhood, but you know, it's just kind of where we're at. The next one here, we should not teach children that they are victims no matter what. We should teach them how to be resilient. So in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which I'm surprised I haven't done a, an entire episode on that. I probably should at some point, but it's a fantastic book. It's probably the best book I've read so far this year. In the coddling of the American mind, it talks about safetyism. It talks about all these kids on college campuses, how they feel like words are violence, or if you disagree with them, that that's, that's somehow violence towards them and they need to be, they need to be protected from that. Okay. But there's another thing that's very nefarious that a lot of people are doing is they're teaching their children, especially, you know, children that are from, uh, you know, the people of color. So Latinos or blacks or whatever the situation may be, they're teaching their children that no matter what you do, son, no matter what you do, honey you're always going to be behind. No matter what you do, you're never going to be able to succeed. Not really. No, no matter how hard you work, the man's going to keep you down. And that man happens to be white, Christian, cisgendered, conservative, whatever the situation may be. They're always going to be keeping you down. What a horrific thing to teach a child. Now, I have my personal qualms with people that tell their children, you can do anything. You can be anything you want to be. Because if mom and dad are both below 5'5", odds are that kid's not going to end up in the NBA. Just saying. We don't see the the gene pool really making that happen. I think it's really, really good for parents to encourage your children to explore and to figure out the things that they truly are passionate about, the things that God has has put inside their hearts that has have been imbued on them. I think it's great for parents to encourage that, while at the same time saying, okay, you know, you're probably not going to be an astrophysicist because you're really, really good at baseball, you know, whatever the situation might be. But I've just heard so many parents, and I've seen the evidence of it, that these parents are just telling their kids that no matter what, they're not going to be able to succeed. They're not going to be able to overcome. And that is not a recipe for success for these children. I feel really bad for these kids. I hope that they can break out of that. But the problem is, is if they break out of their homes and then they go to college, all their professors are going to tell them the same thing. 
And we'll certainly get more into that later as to kind of the, the ancillary consequences of what happened in those types of situations. But I would ask these people that are telling their children, hey, you know, honey, you're black. There's just no way you're going to be able to succeed in America. I just want them to be able to explain that to me. To, to maybe get on a, on a whiteboard and, you know, get a marker and jot, jot down exactly what they mean by that. You know, just really, really narrow it down. Because one of the great things that, that I've learned from Jordan Peterson is whenever he was doing his clinical psychology, when people were coming in with these phobias, these like literally phobic level fears of certain things, regardless of what they, what they were, his goal was not to decrease the fear level in them. His goal for them was to increase their courage. And so if you're sitting there and even if you honestly, if you're the mom or the dad of this child of color and you're thinking to yourself, man, they just, man, they're just not going to be able to succeed like all the other white kids in their class. Even if you believe that, why would you tell them that? Because there's nothing actionable with telling them that unless you're trying to pull some reverse psychology thing. Why not teach them to be resilient? Why not teach them to be an overcomer regardless of the situation? Why don't you teach them that their immutable characteristics don't define them? And we'll certainly get to more, more into that here in just a second, so I don't want to put the cart before the horse. But guys, we should not teach children that they are victims no matter what. We should teach them how to be resilient. And we'll get into the next one here. We should not treat people a certain way based on their race alone. We should treat people as individuals. I know this is crazy to think in the world of intersectionality, but we have to treat people as individuals. So a great story came up. Uh, so for those of you who are familiar with my foxhole, this is from Mike the Grinder. So this is a very well-meaning guy, a very thoughtful guy, a very smart guy. He sent out a message to our, our foxhole groups, and you could just tell this was maybe a week or two after George Floyd had, had been killed, and, and we, we saw all the riots and all the, the unrest and all the things going on in the city that we're in, Oklahoma City. We're certainly not immune to all of that. But he sent out a message to our group and it essentially said something along the lines of, hey guys, you know, let's go. And he, he, he talked about a specific part of town where there's a high population of black people. How about we just, you know, I don't know, just go down to that neighborhood and hold up signs and, and say that we'll, you know, mow lawns for them or, you know, we'll, we'll help fix things in their house or, you know, just, just help the black community out. And again, I'm not dogging on Mike because he's a very well-meaning guy. And I know what he was talking about there came from a very, very genuine and positive place. But I called him immediately after I saw the message and he and I just had a discussion and I said, how offensive of you to think that going to that neighborhood and holding up a sign would somehow assuage the mourning that that community, quote unquote, might be in. Because you're going to drive to a part of town that you perceive to be a quote unquote black part of town. And you're going to assume that the black people that you see on that part of time, part of town need your help specifically. They need you to mow their lawn because, well, they're not capable. They need you to fix their sink or, or to, you know, fix their fence because, oh gosh, they're not capable. They don't have the means to do so. It's a paternalistic mindset that somehow these people are helpless, which is insane because they're not helpless. But if you hear about a specific instance, a specific person that needs help and you want to hop in and be Superman, I say be Superman. Hop in there and get after it. And if that person happens to be black, great. If they happen to be polka dotted, purple and green, great too. But this idea that we should treat people as groups and that will somehow fix something, it's just silly. It's paternalistic. It doesn't make sense. 
So again, I'm not dogging on Mike because I do believe he was coming from a place of, of genuine concern. But this is where I kind of want to fight against this, this idea of quote, black community, the black community, or the gay community, or the trans community, or the Latino community, or the illegal immigrant community. These aren't communities in the way that we normally think about a community. Think about your neighborhood. That is a community. Could you all live? Maybe it's a gated community. Maybe it's just, you know, a specific area on the map where this is this neighborhood. We all call it by this. That's a community. But doing something Aside from fixing the sidewalk or changing out the trees in that community, there's nothing that you can do that directly affects the entire community. The same is true when George Floyd is killed, you're, you're assuming that that affects all black people the same way. When an illegal immigrant dies trying to cross the border, you're assuming that that affects all people that look like that person, even if they're not from the same country as that person, you're assuming that that affects them the same. That's silly. It doesn't make sense. And I think we would do well to, to not look at intersectionality as a viable theory because it's not. Because guess what? If I'm standing in front of a half black, half Native American, trans, queer, lesbian, who's in a wheelchair, they have the Imago Dei. They have the image of God written on them. So in those instances, they're no different than me. When you look at us in terms of a picture of them and a picture of me, there's nothing that that we're similar, right? We don't look similar at all. We probably don't have similar worldviews, but we both have the Imago Dei. So why in the world should I treat them as if they're part of a larger group when I could treat them as an individual? Because Jesus died for all mankind, right? He died for all of us. He didn't die for the black community or the Latino community or the white community or the trans community or the gay community. He died for all of us. So to try and section this thing off as if that's going to help us in this situation, don't get pulled into that. I see a lot of Christians getting pulled into the intersectionality and getting pulled into these arguments that are postmodernist arguments that come from Karl Marx. Don't get, don't get tricked, guys. Guys, we should not treat people a certain way based on their race alone. That's racist. We should treat people as individuals. Next one here. We should not pretend that we are colorblind. We should embrace the uniqueness of people as a gift from God. Okay. So here's the thing. You see a lot of people, a lot of well-meaning white people, liberal, woke white people that say, well, I'm colorblind. I just don't see race. I just look at somebody and they're just a person with eyes and a mouth and that's it. It's ridiculous. And again, that's condescending because of course you're not colorblind. Even if you are guys, I know a lot of guys are colorblind, but you know what I'm saying? In terms of race, of course you're not colorblind. But when I run into somebody that is a different race than me, I think that's interesting because I know just by guessing, they probably had a slightly different upbringing than I did. Maybe they ate slightly different food. Maybe grandma uh, talked to them in a different way than my grandma did. I think that's awesome. I, I, I want to embrace the uniqueness of people because that is truly a gift from God. God gave us these different races. He gave us these different languages and these different cultures and these different norms and these these different ways of dressing, different ways of preparing food, like whatever the situation may be. And that is so awesome. We talk about America being a melting pot. That's the melting pot of the world. Why in the world would you travel maybe to another country or another part of the country that you're in where a lot of people don't look like you and just pretend that they do? Ah, they're just a human All humans are pretty much the same thing. Some are tall, some are fat, but no, (laughs) this is a very different situation. Don't pretend that you're colorblind because you're not. 
It's dumb. It doesn't even make sense. Embrace the uniqueness of people. It's a tremendous gift. So no, we should not pretend that we are colorblind. We should embrace the uniqueness of people as a gift from God. Next one here. We should not destroy the history of the United States and its founders. We should educate people on the true history of the United States and its founders. So guys, we talked about this a lot in the last last episode, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but tearing down statues of Thomas Jefferson, taking George Washington's name off of a school or a street or, or any of those types of things, or not uttering their name because they did some really horrific things in addition to the great things that they did, it doesn't do anything unless you're a Marxist and that's your plan from the beginning. Because you can't have this utopian vision of the planet if you also have history. Because history tells us that your plan doesn't work and it's not going to work and it won't ever work, regardless of how forcefully you try to put it down our throats. Okay? But we need to educate people. That's why I talked about my son. I'm going to educate him and any other kids that we're blessed to be able to have on the true history of the United States. And I'm not going to hide from him the horrific things that were done by some of the founders. I will 100% tell him about what Thomas Jefferson did with slaves. How he basically kept some of his slaves in sexual enslavement, in addition to just regular enslavement, right? And fathered children with them and the horrific things therein. But also, he's the guy that wrote the Declaration of Independence which if you remember from the top of this episode and when we went over that two episodes ago, that's an abolitionist, abolitionist document because it's okay to have a little bit of dissonance with our, with our people from the past. How can Thomas Jefferson write this amazing document that led to the abolition of all the slaves in the United States while owning slaves himself and not treating them very well? How can we do that? The way that you do that is you educate people. You teach them about sin nature. You teach children, hey, our founders were not perfect men. Christopher Columbus was not a perfect man. People in the West that have perpetuated a Western ideology that is undergirded by the things that we've learned from a Judeo-Christian worldview, they're not perfect people. And you don't really have to go farther than the Bible to realize that there's not perfect people. One of my favorite people in the history of ever is King David. Do we really need to go over the things that King David did? Right? Murder, adultery, like the list goes on and on with this guy. So can we not talk about King David? Do do we remove King David from our Bibles? Because he did some horrible things. He got a woman's husband killed so that he could sleep with her. I mean, again, you have to take this to its logical conclusions. But guys, we should not destroy the history of the United States and its founders. We should educate people on the true history of the United States and its founders. Next one here. We should not automatically believe every person of color when they claim that they have been a victim of a racist act. We should treat every alleged instance of racism with skepticism as with literally any other claim of wrongdoing or crime. So that might sound a little bit insensitive, but there are, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode or not, but there are organizations in the United States that are now doing diversity training and implicit bias training, and they're basically telling all of their management, hey, if a person of color comes to you, and claims that they're a victim of a racist act, just believe them until proven otherwise. Which sounds insane, because it is. In what other part of society would we be okay with that? That that we would basically just believe them before we see any evidence. Because again, you're not going to find me as the guy that if there is evidence of a racist claim, I'm certainly not going to say that they should ignore that too. They should fight against it. We'll certainly talk more about that later. But this idea that this is somehow evening the score by believing all of these individuals, it's silly because of what I said in the last episode, which is that these instances of fake hate crimes are going through the roof in the United States. 
And a lot of these people that are quote unquote, I've said that about a thousand times in this episode, but if they're quote unquote victims of hate crimes, a lot of these people, you know, perpetrated them on themselves. They spray painted the N word on the side of their building building. They're the ones that hung up a noose in, in their dorm room. Like they're the people that are doing it. They're just crying out for attention. And more often than not, it wasn't something perpetrated by a racist white person or a racist, any other color of person. It's something that they did themselves because I don't know, they thought that could gain points. Again, Jesse Smollett thought that he was, his career was going to explode because of that. Well, it kind of exploded in the opposite direction, but again, we should not automatically believe every person of color when they claim that they should, they have been a victim of a racist act. We should instead treat every alleged instance of racism with skepticism as with literally any other claim of wrongdoing or crime. You don't automatically believe stuff until you've seen evidence that doesn't really make a lot of sense to do that. Next one here. We should not defund the police. We should refund the police. Now, I say refund because there are a lot of police departments in the United States that have had their budgets cut, especially in the wake of what happened to George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks, as if that's going to help anything. And the interesting thing about some of those cities, so Chicago, New York, Milwaukee, some of these cities that have done some of these silly things, Minneapolis, murders have skyrocketed and felony crimes have skyrocketed. I talked about that in the last episode. But this idea that defunding the police is going to help us, it doesn't make any sense unless you think like a Marxist thinks and you say, well, we have to get rid of the police so that all the citizenry will depend on us and us as big brother, us as the government, right? The evil government that they're going to tear down and build back up as a phoenix rising from the ashes in the, in the image of Karl Marx, right? But we need to refund those police departments. And in addition to that, we need to increase the funding, right? Again, Andrew Yang doesn't say a lot of smart things. Every cop should be a purple belt in jujitsu. That's going to take time and that's going to take money. You've heard Jocko Willing say before that he thinks cops should be training 20% of the time. So if they work five days a week, one of those days is just spent training, training with their firearms, training with, with grappling, training with, you know, law, just, you know, studying the law, making sure that they're, they're all squared away. But most of these cops after the Academy, the standards just basically disappear. Physical standards, mental standards, those types of things, they just disappear. Well, if you're going to have better cops that are better able to handle the situations, the almost 40, 400 million interactions with the United States populace every year, we've got to have more funding for them so that they can do the training. Now, you don't just increase the funding and the training just happens. When you increase the funding, it has to be allocated to the right types of trainings. But again, this whole idea of defunding the police, no, we should not defund the police. We should refund the police. Next one here. We should not pretend that people of color cannot be racist. This is, this is a big one. We cannot pretend that people of color cannot be racist. We should realize that racism can take many forms and can be perpetrated by anyone that looks like anything, right? This idea that because, you know, and this, this comes from intersectionality, this postmodern modern thoughts in terms of critical race theory, that the, you know, the blacks or other people of color, they can't be racist because they've never been the power. They've never been in the majority. Okay. Only white people can be racist. This doesn't even make sense on its face. Because we've seen a lot of racist things happen in the black community. Like, again, I said the black community and when there's not really a black community. But let me let me take you back to a story I said in the first podcast. I remember growing up, I saw blacks being racist to other blacks. I saw, you know, I guess I don't know what they would call themselves, but not dark skinned black people, not light skinned black people, but somewhere in the middle. They would make fun of the other two groups. You know, regular black people would make fun of light-skinned black people and make fun of dark-skinned black people. Some of it went way beyond teasing, right? Some of it was, was pretty horrific, some of the stuff that I saw. So are those racist things? 
Like they're certainly gross things, but there I've, I've also been around people that had been beat up just because they didn't look like the race of the people that beat them up. And spoiler alert, the people doing the beatings weren't white. So those things are racist because if a group of six white people beat up a black kid just because he's black, that's super racist. And those kids should go down for that. But if you reverse the roles and six black dudes beat up a white kid just because he's white, that's hyper racist. So sitting around here pretending that people of color cannot be racist, that doesn't make a lot of sense. There's no way that you can actually defend that type of a thing. And the reason is, is because most people think in terms of racism and reverse racism, right? So in the instances where a white person is being, you know, basically treated differently because of their race, well, that's reverse racism. Well, we've already talked about that. There's no such thing as reverse racism. There's only racism. So again, we should not pretend that people of color cannot be racist. We should instead realize that racism can take many forms and can be perpetrated by anyone. Next one here. We should not stand for the soft bigotry of low expectations. We should judge everyone on an equal standing. So some of you might be familiar with that phrase. Some of you might not, but the soft bigotry of low expectations is a phrase that was coined by Michael Gerson. So he's a speechwriter for George W. Bush, uh, <laughs> George W. Bush, rather. Um, most attribute that quote though to W because he said it in a speech uh, to the NAACP back in 2000. And so most people think that it was George W. Bush that came up with that, but it was actually Michael Gerson. But essentially it's expecting less of someone based on their membership in a group based on immutable characteristics such as race. So the the way that we see this and, and the way that uh, W presented this when he was talking to the NAACP, he was talking about the No Child Left Behind Act, which I'm not here to talk about, whether that was a success or a failure, but he was essentially talking about when you have lower expectations on an entire group of children because of the race that they're associated with, that that's not good, that we can't do that. And so it's very bigoted to do that, actually. And so we see this in a lot of cases. So I guess the most stark example is college admissions standards. And so you've probably heard a lot about this with Harvard and different things like that. But there are a lot of colleges, pretty much all colleges will admit people from different races and they will change the standards for those people in terms of admissions. Okay. So for certain scholarships or for just admissions, if you're a black person in the United States, you can actually get a lower SAT or uh, ACT score. You can have a lower GPA. You can be involved in less things and you will be judged as equal to someone of another race that has to basically jump over a higher bar. You know, they have to get a 26 on the ACT. You only have to get a 22, that type of situation. So the problem is, is these colleges, they, they create these quotas based on race, racial quotas, gender quotas, whatever the situation may be. And so they get the freshman numbers. So let's say their, their quota goal is to have 25% uh, incoming freshmen being black people. Okay. So they get that. And then they stop tracking for the most part. The problem that we see is with students of any race that are led into a college at standards that are below the standards that are set by the university, the majority of those people don't graduate. And so you have these really, really hard schools where a lot of smart people get there and don't succeed. And then you lower the standards for other people just so that they can get in and then they don't finish. What good is that? That is a really negative outcome that comes from the soft bigotry of low expectations. And so we've seen a lot of stories uh, and I've seen a lot of studies that I've looked at, especially with these black high school students that are being accepted into colleges that are kind of beyond them academically. And then they get to these colleges and it's not beyond them academically because they're black. It's just beyond them because of, of, of their, their background and their ability to understand. They would be impossible for me to get into those schools as well or most of the friends that I know of all races. 
But when you let them in just because of the color of their skin, they get there and then they can't perform. Or maybe worse yet, the professors just kind of pass them along and they just kind of give them the grades that they haven't really earned just because of their immutable characteristics, such as their race. It doesn't set that person up for success because you have to tease it out. So let's say, you know, you admitted them uh, from high school with lower standards and lower grades and they get to college and they drop out. That's a bad outcome. Let's say you get them into college and you say, oh, well, you know, they're black. And so they probably had a bad home life and they probably had a bad education system that they were a part of. So let's give them an A, even though they, they earned a C or whatever the situation may be. They end up graduating and then they go out into the job market and they can't hack it. And again, switch the races out and do this with any group. It's the same thing. If you were to change it for Asians or Latinos or whites or whatever the situation may be, it's bad for them, quote unquote, as a group. This is the quote unquote podcast. But as a group, it is bad for those people. Because at some point along the line, the other shoe's going to drop. Whether in college, whether they're looking for a job, whether they're trying to develop their career later on in life and they haven't learned the basic skills to do so. There's a really good friend of mine that, you know, he just couldn't write. And he had me try to look at one of his papers in college and the dude just couldn't write. And it's like, at that point, I can't help him. I'm just his buddy. I'm a junior in college. I know a good amount about English and I'm a decent writer, but this is a guy who needs to basically go back to junior high and learn how to put a sentence together. I can't fix that. Think about it in the same way as a boss. If you got a business degree, but you don't know anything about accounting, you don't know anything about finance and you don't, and you've never written a business proposal of any kind and they're supposed to hire you in their business, that's not their job to teach you those things. You're supposed to come as a ready-made package for those things. So again, it's not beneficial to these people to do stuff like that. So again, we should not stand for the soft bigotry of low expectations. We should judge everybody on equal standing. Next one here. We should not participate in tokenism. We should honor the best in every situation, regardless of their immutable characteristics. So tokenism is basically, you've heard of the thing, oh, the token black guy, the token Asian, whatever the situation may be. But it's elevating somebody. This is kind of attached to the soft bigotry of low expectations, actually. Uh, Interesting how these are back to back. But when you provide tokenism, that's where you're bringing somebody into a fold that they didn't deserve to be there in the first place. And you're only doing that based on their immutable characteristics. And so the most egregious example of this is unfortunately from one of my favorite people on the planet to, to listen to or otherwise, and that's Matt Chandler. So some of you know about this and you know where I'm going, but this was several years ago. I believe that this was in a sermon. I tried to find the sermon. I wasn't able to find it, but uh, you know, there were articles written about it and it's all over the place. But essentially, Matt Chandler, he's taken on the racial reconciliation thing as as one of his big issues, and more on that in a second. But essentially what he did is he said if he was doing a church plant, okay, um, and he needed to hire the best pastor, right, to to basically lead that church plant as part of, I think he was still in the Acts 29 uh, network at that time. He might still be. And he had two candidates that were the final two candidates. And there was a guy that was an eight out of eight out of 10, and another guy was a seven out of 10. And let's say the guy who was an eight out of 10 was a white guy. And the guy that was seven out of 10 was a black guy. He said he would hire the black guy. And Vody Bauckham, who, you know, we'll talk about more later in this podcast, Dr. Vody Bauckham, he eviscerated Matt Chandler for this. And rightfully so, because he said that's tokenism and that's racist. Why in the world would you risk part of your ministry or just from a business standpoint, why would you hire someone that's not the best person for the job? And your only reasoning is because of a characteristic that they cannot control their race, the color of their skin. Why would you do that? And and there are a lot of companies, guys, and we talked about universities a second ago. There's a lot of companies that have racial quotas now. 
there's a lot of boards of directors that have said, okay, we need to have a certain number of women on this board, certain number of women of color, some certain number of LGBTQ people, whatever the situation may be. How is that helping the bottom line of the company overall? It sure is making you feel good. I mean, your hand's going to be sore from patting yourself on the back so hard, but at the same time, it's like, how does that help anyone? And again, this is this idea that we should not be treating people based on their groups, based on their immutable characteristics. That's like saying, we're only going to hire tall people, only people that are above six foot four. Well, what if they're six foot 10 and they're morons? What do you do at that point? Oh, well, we said we were going to hire this many tall people. So I guess we'll just keep doing that. It doesn't make sense, guys. We can't operate that way. So we should not participate in tokenism. We should honor the best in every situation, regardless of their immutable characteristics. Next one here. We should not excuse personal responsibility. We should hold incredibly high standards for personal responsibility. And so if you're tired of hearing me talk about this, let me go to a quote from someone that you might've heard of before. So Martin Luther King Jr. He gave a speech or a sermon in 1961 in St. Louis. And this is what he said, quote, Negroes are 10% of the city of St. Louis and are responsible for 58% of its crimes. We have to face that and we have to do something about our moral standards. We know there are many things wrong with the white world, but there are many things wrong in the black world too. We can't keep blaming the white man. There are things we must do ourselves, unquote. So one thing that we see a lot in these types of situations, and again, this comes from kind of the paternalistic instinct that I talked about earlier, is, you know what, these people just... They, they, they can't do any better than what they're doing right now. So I'm going to help them up because I'm white and I'm great and I'm really, really smart and I'm super liberal. So I'm going to help these people. But in those types of situations, we're excusing personal responsibility for these people. Because that's one thing that I find that's very interesting is you'll talk to these people that are like, you know, what is a, is a black person that grows up in Baltimore? What are they to do aside from dealing drugs? What are they to do as aside from join a gang? There are no other options. Well, guys, if that was actually true, then there would be a 100% crime rate in these communities. And there's not. We have choices. All of us. Some people, they were born and they woke up on third base. That, that's just what their life is. They're almost all the way home. Some of us were not even out of the batter's box yet. Some of us get the silver spoon. Some of us don't get a spoon at all. We're all dealt a different hand, but we all have the ability to choose unless you're Sam Harris and you think we're dancing to our DNA or, you know, whatever that other guy is. I can't think of the four horsemen of atheism right now because I'm too fired up. But in this type of situation, assuming that you believe in free will and autonomy and decision-making, personal decision-making, how can you also not agree that personal responsibility is important? Because if you choose not to study for the exam, it doesn't matter how good or bad your school is. You're not going to learn you're not going to do well on that exam. If you don't put the time in, in the weight room, you can't expect to be stronger come next football season. What kind of a football coach is going to say, oh, you know what? You didn't do any of the off-season sprints. You didn't do any of the two-a-days. You didn't do the lifting program. But you know what? That's okay. We're going to make you strong. Well, that doesn't work that way. You have to put in the work as an individual. So why in so many situations do we look at the individual as, as if they're the only thing that can do something, except when it comes to the issues that we're talking about today? But these people just can't help it. They're a victim. They're not ever going to be able to overcome. Or you can encourage people and teach them how to make better decisions, which is usually easier when mom and dad are in the home. 
So this idea that if we excuse personal responsibility that we've done some sort of favor to somebody, that doesn't do them any favors because again, the other shoe drops. It always will drop. So we should not excuse personal responsibility. We should hold incredibly high standards for all people in terms of personal responsibility. Next one here. We should not ignore instances of blatant racism. We should not ignore instances of blatant racism. We should stand and fight against every specific instance of racism that we encounter. And I just encountered a doozy this week. Oh my goodness. So a lot of you guys have heard about this. Many of you have not, but the, (laughs) I can't even believe this. It's so crazy. I'm going to read the whole thing to you though. The National Museum of African American History and Culture released a graphic that went viral. Just a graphic, and you probably had never heard of the National Museum of African American History and Culture before, but now you will have heard of them. Basically, they released a graphic that was titled this, The Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness and White Culture in the United States. So I'm going to read this list to you, okay? And I just want you to ask yourself this question as I read through this list. And the only question is this, is is this racist? All right, maybe a secondary question. Would David Duke agree with this? If you don't know who David Duke is, crazy white supremacist, lunatic, probably shouldn't be alive, okay? David Duke, if he would agree with this, and also ask yourself, is this racist? So I'm just gonna read this. Again, this is a description of what whiteness is and white culture, okay? So I'm just gonna read uh, basically the little description here and then we're gonna get into the list. White dominant culture or whiteness, so whiteness is white dominant culture, refers to the ways white people and their traditions, attitudes, and ways of life have been normalized over time and are now considered standard practices in the United States. And since white people still hold most of the institutional power in America, we have all internalized some aspects of white culture, including people of color. So basically the list I'm about to read you, according to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, these are things that if they are part of who you are, these are negative because they come from whiteness, which is the, the, basically the institutional power in America that should be torn down. Great. So let's get into the list. First thing, rugged individualism. The individual is the primary unit, self-reliance, independence, and autonomy is highly valued and rewarded. Individuals assumed to be in control of their environment. You get what you deserve. That's whiteness. Family structure. So basically the nuclear family, father, mother, 2.3 children is the ideal social unit. Husband is breadwinner and head of household. Wife is homemaker and subordinate to the husband. Children should have own rooms, be independent. That is whiteness. That's family structure. Emphasis on the scientific method. Even science is racist. Objective, rational, linear thinking is a white thing. (laughs) Cause and effect relationships and quantitative emphasis. That's whiteness. That's emphasis on scientific method. History is whiteness. Based on Northern European, uh, Northern European immigrants' experience in the United States, heavy focus on the British Empire and the primary uh, or the primacy of Western—that's Greek and Roman and Judeo-Christian traditions—that's whiteness. The next one is Protestant work ethic. Didn't know that was a thing. Hard work is the key to success. Work before play. If you didn't meet your goals, you didn't work hard enough. That's whiteness. Next one here. Religion, that's whiteness. Christianity is the norm. Anything other than Judeo-Christian tradition is foreign and no tolerance for deviation from a single God concept. So that's whiteness. Next one here, status, power, and authority. Wealth equals worth. That's a white thing. Your job is who you are. Respecting authority, heavy value on ownership of goods, space, and property. That's whiteness. Future orientation is whiteness. Plan for the future, delayed gratification, progress is always best, and tomorrow will be better. That's whiteness. Time is whiteness or or racist, I guess you could say. If you follow a rigid time schedule, 
or time is viewed as a commodity. That's whiteness. The next thing is aesthetics based on European culture, steaks and potatoes, bland is best. Women's beauty based on blonde, thin, you know, Barbie types, man attractiveness based on economic status, power, intellect. That's a, that's whiteness. Holidays are whiteness based on Christian religions or based on white history and male leaders. Justice is whiteness. That's based on English common law, uh, protect property and entitlements and intent counts. The next thing is competition is whiteness. So being number one, winning at all costs, the winner loser dichotomy, action orientation, master and control nature must always quote, do something unquote about the situation, aggressiveness and extroversion, decision-making and majority rules. That's when whites have power. So that's all competition. That's all whiteness. And the last one here, communication, the King's English rules, that's whiteness, written tradition, avoiding conflict or intimacy, not showing emotions, not discussing personal life and being polite. Those are all whiteness. So to recap from the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture are rugged individualism, family structure, emphasis on the scientific method, history, Protestant work ethic, religion, status, power, and authority, future orientation, time, aesthetics, holidays, justice, competition, and communication. Now, Thank you for indulging me as I read through that entire thing. Let's go back to the two questions I made sure you asked yourself. Is this racist? I'm pretty sure it's racist. Pretty sure it's crazy racist. And that's basically because of the answer to the second question, which is, would David Duke like that? I guarantee you, this is the only thing that David Duke has ever in his entire life printed off from the website of the National Museum of African American History and Culture and put on his own wall. He may have even framed this. Because he agrees with this, because he doesn't think people of color are capable of those things. But think about how insane that is. This got such bad backlash, even in our current culture, that the National Museum of African American History and Culture had to take it down. I'm glad I took a screenshot of it before they took it off their website. But that is a blatant example of racism. And everyone should be able to agree with that. If any one of you posted that on your Facebook because you thought it was a good thing, you're a moron right? Or you're a racist or both. But the thing about it is, and, and I'll kind of you know move away from, from this graphic thing, is when we do see a specific instance of racism, as men of God, we should be the first ones to stand up. That's why I agree with what Ben Shapiro says is if you can show me a law that is racist in intent, or you can show me an actual instance of a hate crime or something like that, I will stand beside you as you fight against that. You know, it's, it's my, it's, I'm duty bound as a Christian to do such a thing. Because whenever you do a racist act, racist act against somebody, you're violating the Imago Dei. That, that's just the reality of it. But the thing is, is you have to point it out when it's racist, no matter who, who the one perpetrating it is. And we shouldn't ignore it. I think it's good wisdom for us as Christians to not just sit idly by and ignore things that are happening. There's a lot of Christians that ignore the fact that a million babies are slaughtered in the womb every year. I don't like that. The same thing is I don't like when people do turn a blind eye to blatant instances of racism. And the thing is, is you can't do whataboutism. If you see something that's a blatant instance of racism, real racism, you can't be like, well, what about all the times when it wasn't true? You can't lean on that crutch because every situation is different. That's kind of the point of this whole podcast. Situations are different and contextual and unique and people are different and contextual and unique. They're not parts of groups. Every situation should be met with a little bit of skepticism until you can wait for the dust to settle. So we should not ignore instances of blatant racism, guys. We should stand and fight against every specific instance of racism that we encounter. Next one here. We should not try to guarantee equality of outcome. We should ensure 
that there is equality of opportunity. Okay. Not going to spend a lot of time on this one because equality of outcome is something that you can't do. Like I said, some people wake up on third base. Some people have a silver spoon, but the government's job is to clear the playing field, not level it. Because when you have individuals, there is no such thing as a quality of outcome. You can't possibly do that unless you mandate it. That's communism. That's socialism. You, you, you can't have that happen, guys. It's not realistic. Not er- everyone's not going to end up in the same place. I'm not sitting around, you know, basically kicking weeds and being all, you know, navel gazing because I'm not as tall, strong, or athletic as LeBron James. I'm not doing that. So we're going to have different outcomes for our life, but I'm, I guarantee you there's things that I do better than LeBron James. Now he's probably not going to be too concerned about that, but at the same time, we can't guarantee that and expecting the government to hop down and do that is silly. We should not try to guarantee equality of outcome. We should ensure that there is a quality of opportunity. Next one here. We should not be offended for people. We should instead allow people to react however they decide to. So I've seen a lot of this lately where people who are not part of the affected group, if you would call it, I don't want to say quote unquote again, but the the affected group, they're not actually offended by it. It's everybody else that's offended. So the the perfect example is the Washington Redskins. So the Washington Redskins came out about a week ago and said that they're going to be changing their their team nickname after however many decades as that team. Uh, You know, the Redskins are always kind of in the crosshairs anytime there's any racial unrest in the United States because that name is racist. And the thing about it is, it's very interesting because every time this happens, There are polling groups that go to Native American communities and ask them if they consider the name Redskins to be racist. And you know what's interesting? Typically, 90 plus percent every time they're asked say that, nah, I'm not bothered by it. That's not racist. 90 90 plus percent every time say that they're not offended by that. And I I wasn't able to guarantee that this was true or fact check this, but I'm pretty sure the original uh, logo, the Redskins logo, was created by by a Native American. Uh, the tribe I can't remember. And so we have all these white, woke liberals that are coming out of the woodwork saying, this is racist, we've got to change it. And the Native Americans, who are the ones that are supposed to be offended by this, are like, eh, not bothered by it, play ball. So again, guys, if you're trying to be offended for someone else, and I've, I have people that I know very, very closely, they're, they're, they go over the top with their reactions to things because they think they're doing a favor to someone in their life that they care about, that, that it should be affecting, right? I know that's a little bit obtuse to say it that way, but guys, we shouldn't be offended for people. We should allow people to react however they decide to. The next thing is that we should not be cold-hearted. We should mourn with those who mourn. Okay, so Romans 12, 15, mourn with those who mourn. I know that there are a lot of people that have kind of hardened their hearts in in times like these because it's really easy to do that because you see all of this negativity. You see all of this disintegration in the communities that we're in. We see all of this, you know, just nonsense and ignorance in a lot of these different subjects. So it'd be very easy to be cold hearted and you might miss out on an opportunity to be there for somebody who is actually hurting, who is actually mourning and, and might need your assistance and might need your help. So we should not be cold-hearted. We should mourn with those who mourn. Next one here is we should not believe the claims of systemic racism blindly. We should treat systemic racism as systemic racism theory. So people just throw out systemic racism as if it's a reality. As I've talked about in the first episode of of this whole three-part series is that it's, it's not. Systemic racism is not a thing in the United States in 2020. We did have some systemic racism in the past, and I talked about those at length. We don't have that now. So we can't just grant it the, the, the elevation 
of, of just being believed blindly. It's a theory. Now, when you test the theory, it comes back particularly bad for those that are propagating it, but treat it as a theory. This is a theoretical way of looking at a particular subject. So we should not believe the claims of systemic racism blindly. We should treat systemic racism as systemic racism theory. Next one. We should not judge people by their actions on their worst day. We should have grace for people concerning the race issue. So this is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we, should, that we shouldn't call out racists for doing racist things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, ah, you know, don't give that grand wizard of the KKK such a hard time. You know, he was just having a bad day. But there are people that have done things in poor taste in the past, and I don't think that they should be judged for their entire lives based on that. You know, I talked about blackface in one of the episodes, and no, Jimmy Kimmel dressing up as Carl Malone versus Jimmy Kimmel dressing up as Sambo, those are not the same things. Little Black Sambo, that, those aren't the same things. That's blackface. That's blatantly racist and meant to be racist, okay? But, you know, and we'll talk about cancel culture here in a second, but we should have grace for people on the racial issue. There's a lot of ignorance, and I, I didn't think I was going to tell the story, but I might as well go ahead and do it because I was telling someone about it the other day, but I'll, I'll leave the person out, but let, let's just call it a person that I know, okay? This person that's a little bit older, and they were in the Army, okay? They came from a very, very poor uh, background. Uh, they grew up, uh, so poor that they didn't really know what Christmas was until they were in their teen years. And that's not hyperbole. That's just really what happened. So this is a black person who grew up poor, uh, got in a lot of trouble and had to join the army or go to jail. And they chose the army. Now this person was taking a shower. They were at basic training and they're taking a shower and they're, you know, they're all in the showers, they're naked. And he noticed that there's these two white guys that are watching him while he's bathing, while he's showering. So at first he just thought, you know, maybe their eyes were wandering. And then he realized these guys were looking at him, right? And so he finishes his shower, he puts his clothes on, and then he goes up and he uh, confronts these two white guys. You know, he was ready for a fight, right? What are you looking at me, looking at me for? Are you sizing me up? That type of thing. He was ready for a fight. That's what he was used to. And those, those white guys were really, really embarrassed. And they were like, man, we're, we're so sorry. Like, we, we didn't mean to stare at you. And we're sorry to even admit this, but you're the first black person that we've ever met. And we were taught growing up that black people had tails. Yeah. These dudes were 18, 19 years old, and they grew up in a community that taught that black people had tails. And so when they saw a naked black person for the first time, they were looking at him thinking to themselves, well, where's the tail? I mean, it's a horrific story. Like, when I've told people that in, in private situations, it's been, it's uncomfortable to even say. But in those situations, if we treat what those men did as the unforgivable sin, we're missing out on an opportunity to educate these people. Because you know what ended up happening? You probably know how the story ends. They didn't fight. They became friends. You know, the, the, my buddy, who, who's the black guy in this situation, he was shocked and appalled and offended, and then he got over it. And he just said, God, these dumb, dumb white boys. And then they, they became friends. And these white people got an education on what it is to befriend a black person in America because they had gone almost two decades without doing that. And so I would think it would be horrific to treat those two guys as just products of their environment because they were just blatantly ignorant. They weren't being racist or I guess they were being racist, but they didn't know it because they were so ignorant. I mean, can you imagine growing up for 18 or 19 years never having seen a black person except on television and having probably someone in his family tell him, oh yeah, black people just have tails. They're pretty much monkeys. 
these horrific things that people have said, how would you know to know any different? These people didn't grow up in the age of the internet. They couldn't just research it real quick. And do you just say that in biology class in 10th grade? Hey, I heard black people had tails. Is that true, Mr. So-and-so? Like, you can't do that. But can you imagine judging them based on that one instance? So I think we should have a lot of grace with people around the race issue because you have to ask yourself, is is racism an unforgivable sin? Because I personally don't think it is. Because if you think that racism is an unforgivable sin, then you don't believe in the totality of the power of God. I don't think you want to open that can of worms. So we should not judge people by their actions on their worst day. We should have grace for people concerning the race issue. Next one here. We should not act as if saying Black Lives Matter is neutral. We should educate people on the ideologies of that organization. I'm not going to go into that any further. Go to the last episode. I break that down in great detail. But the NBA putting Black Lives Matter on jerseys and Black Lives Matter on the court, that is not a neutral saying. That is a description of a Marxist ideology coming from a specific organization. We can't do that. We should not act as if saying Black Lives Matter is neutral. We should educate people on the ideologies of that organization. Next thing, we should not grant cancel culture any power. We should steal our nerves, and that's steal, S-T-E-E-L. A lot of people are being canceled now. I've kind of joked about it at the top of the last two episodes about, hey, I'm still here. I haven't been canceled. But a lot of people, they're they're pulling up tweets from their past or they're pulling up off-color comments or they're pulling up these types of things and they're trying to cancel these people. They're trying to get rid of them. Um, and most part, and, and again, second time mentioning Jordan Peterson, but Jordan Peterson is a guy that, you know, if he sneezes, it becomes front page news on the New York Times. And is uh, is he perpetrating uh, white power and uh, because he sneezes? And is this uh, where the culture is headed with white male cisgendered people? You know, whatever the situation might be. But he basically says that every time he gets caught up in one of these usually faux outrages from people, is he just basically steals his nerves, spends the next two weeks kind of just letting everything die down, and then he moves on with his life. He might be on Twitter less in those two weeks. He might check his email a little bit less those two weeks, but then he just moves on with his life. So the thing about cancel culture is it only has power if you, if you let it. Now, if you're a Hollywood actor or actress listening to this right now, and you're a conservative and you're anti-Black Lives Matter, the organization and all these different things, and you say that out loud, you can't also assume at the same time, you're still going to get those A-list movies. Again, If you're in college and all of your professors are wildly left and you want to sit there and you want to argue for uh, principles from conservatism and the right and Christianity, whatever the situation may be, you can't also assume that you're going to get straight A's. There's going to be some sort of a, some sort of a, a backlash there, but cancel culture is only as powerful as you allow it to be. So we should not grant cancel culture any power. We should just steal our nerves. Next one here. We should not pretend that art doesn't negatively impact the issue of race in America. We should be incredibly careful about what we consume and whether or not we believe it outright. I'm specifically talking about rap music. Okay? So... I I am a fan of rap music. I grew up in a town where there was a lot of rap music made. A lot of my friends were rappers, whatever the situation may be there. But to sit here and pretend that the content of rap music has no impact on black culture or black children in America is silly. Because when you have guys referring to cops as pigs and saying that they should be killed and you're a 12 year old, maybe that's going to have an impact on you. If you hear a guy refer to women as bitches and hoes in their music and you're a 14 year old boy and you're just starting to explore dating with girls and stuff like that, you don't think that has an impact? The, the violence that's described in a lot of rap music, you don't think that has an impact on people? 
So again, I know that's like the old timey white guy argument, like, oh, rap music, that's the worst. We need to get rid of all that. I'm not saying we need to get rid of all that, but some of these same guys that are making literal millions and millions of dollars with this racist, violent, misogynistic, pro-drug use, you know, anti-Christian worldview and those types of things, they can't also come out and say, yeah, Black Lives Matter, we're fighting the system, we're doing all these things. It's like, bro, you're part of the destruction of the system. And I don't mean in the way that you think. You're hurting black people with your music. And here's the other thing. I've seen some concerts where, you know, there's these rappers on stage and the audience is, you know, 90% white and they're singing along with the lyrics of a song that has the N-word in it. And then they have the audacity to be offended. These rappers are teaching suburban white kids to use the N-word. And they're offended and appalled when they see it right in front of their faces. I find that incredibly interesting. And the same thing goes for for TV shows and movies and things like that. When you're portraying this lifestyle, right? This thug life lifestyle. And, you know, I'm not going to let the man hold me down lifestyle. And the only way that I know how to fight that is with violence. That has an impact. So we should not pretend that art doesn't negatively impact the issue of race in America. We should be incredibly careful about what we consume and whether or not we believe it outright. Next one here, we should not wait on our pastors to tell us what to do or how to act. We should let God guide us. And this goes back to the thing I said from the top, guys. I'm talking to a lot of guys about this issue and their pastors aren't. Why aren't they? Why aren't they talking about this issue? Why are they staying on whatever biblical series, not that that series isn't important. Why aren't they talking about this? Because to the pastors listening to this, your flocks are confused. Your flocks are coming to me. I don't have my MDiv. Like I haven't read the Bible as much as you have, but I'm I'm letting God guide me through these discussions because I feel like, like I told you from the first episode, I was never going to talk about race on this podcast. It was too hot of an issue six months ago when nothing was going on. And now it's, it's still red hot in the wake of the George Floyd killing. But there are guys literally waiting around for their pastor. Maybe this Sunday he'll talk about it. Ah, uh, you know, maybe I'll call him next week. Uh, maybe we can grab coffee and we can talk through this. But guys, we shouldn't wait on our pastors to tell us what to do or how to act. We should let God guide us. He's the ultimate guide anyway. And the next one here is related to it. We should not allow Marxism to infiltrate our churches. We should call out our pastors and encourage them to be steadfast in the face of societal pressure. Kind of going back to the Matt Chandler situation from earlier, the thing about Matt Chandler, and I hate this, that he does this on this subject, but he is basically creating a straw man of anybody that is challenging him on this issue. He basically calls out his church and calls out anybody that criticizes him when he talks about racial reconciliation, basically calling them racist. Like basically, if you don't think the same way that I do exactly on this particular issue and how we're supposed to move forward, you're a racist and you need to search your heart and you need God to do a work in you. That's his, that's his mindset. And again, I love everything that Matt Chandler has basically said and done except for this issue. But what Matt Chandler doesn't realize is he has allowed Marxism to be smuggled in to his church and into his ideology and theology, really. There's this whole woke church movement that he's co-signing. Eric Mason is, you know, I think he literally wrote the book called Woke Church. But the thing thing about it is, is as the flock, we've got to be able to point out to our pastors when they're doing this type of thing. And that is dangerous. And you go to a pastor like Matt Chandler and you say, great, here are the things that you just said. Here are the things that Karl Marx said in the Communist Manifesto. Can you please show me the difference, sir? 
Can you please show me the biblical basis for your argument and how it's different than what I'm seeing in the Communist Manifesto? Can you show me the difference? Because guys, if we don't fight against it, our pastor's just going to continue operating. Again, attribute to ignorance what you can't attribute to malice. Don't assume that they're doing it on purpose. Matt Chandler is doing it on purpose now. But some of the guys that are saying these things, they think they're well-meaning. Some of these pastors that are talking about this issue, that are taking a very soft stance and making a very, very postmodern argument for something that shouldn't be postmodern, we've got to be able to call that out. So we should not allow Marxism to infiltrate our churches. We should call out our pastors and encourage them to be steadfast in the face of societal pressure. Next thing here, I think we only got a few left. We should not depend on earthly justice. We should depend on perfect justice. Here's the thing, guys. This postmodern intersectionality, Marxism, this is all pagan justice. You have to have the social justice movement be based on something other than the justice of God. And it is. Because when you look at the Black Lives Matter website, you look at their rallies, Do you hear anything that even vaguely resembles the gospel? Do you hear anything? And the thing about it is, is when you have a pagan, naturalist, materialist, atheistic worldview, you have to have justice on this planet because there is no cosmic justice. Talked about this before. There's no cosmic justice in the atheistic worldview. You have to take justice. Vengeance is yours, not God's. But for you guys, depend on earthly justice whether you're being directly affected by the issues that are going on right now or you're just watching on the sidelines. We should not depend on earthly justice. We should depend on perfect justice. And guys, I think this is the last one here. Yeah, last one here. We should not side with what the world thinks is right. We should rest on the unchanging, ever-present gospel. So I've got some reminders for you. And you might want to go back and listen to this section over and over again because these are good reminders. Here's one. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's Isaiah 53, 5. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark 10, 45. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John three sixteen. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 10.43 He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 4.25 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 Guys, if you think the gospel isn't enough, if you think the good news of Jesus and his sacrifice for us isn't enough? If you think that it's the gospel plus something else, if it's the gospel plus critical race theory, the gospel plus intersectionality, the gospel plus postmodernism, the gospel plus Karl Marx, the gospel plus this stack of woke books, I got news for you. You're going to be let down. And you're going to have a very muddy and muddled worldview. And, and I don't know how to encourage you in any other way other than we know how the story ends. We know the path to salvation. We know that Jesus died specifically for us. He died for all sinners of all shapes, sizes, and races. Why can't you rest in that? 
if you somehow have disagreed with most of what I've said and still made it this far into the podcast, what else are you resting on? What are you adding to this? Because nothing needs to be added, guys. We should not side with what the world thinks is right. We should rest on the unchanging, ever-present gospel. Well, guys, there's your three-part series. I don't know if if I'll ever do another three-part series. This is only the second time I've done a series of any kind. But there you go. I, I did my best with it. I mean, if you're not satisfied with the last three episodes, maybe don't pass go. <laughs> don't go past episode 144 because I spent a lot of time thinking about this, a lot of time pre- preparing these podcasts. I probably spent more time preparing these three podcasts than any other three podcasts combined that I've ever done up to this point. And so that doesn't speak to the quality necessarily because that's in the eye of the beholder. But guys, I did everything that I could to really wring out every last thought that I had on this. And I looked at a lot of materials, I got a lot of other opinions, and then I brought it to you in this way. So, it's the best I got. I'm relieved that it's over with, but there you go. All right, guys, before we let you go, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know by now, we are a men's ministry, and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So, for you today, I've got an incredible three-part, it's not technically a three-part sermon series, but it's three sermons back-to-back by the same guy. Guys, this is the trilogy you need in your lives. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, John Wick, or whatever trilogy you can think of, this is the trilogy you need. Okay, these are all by Dr. Vody Bauckham. He's one of my favorite pastors to listen to. So the the three episodes or these three talks that he gave, gave were for a founder's ministry, but he talked about ethnic Gnosticism, cultural Marxism, and racial reconciliations. He specifically focused on Ephesians 2, verses 10 and 11. Those are incredible. Guys, they're all an hour apiece. I think the last two may be even a little bit over an hour. It is so worth your time. You have my permission to skip maybe the next few episodes of this podcast so that you can go and listen to those. It really informs a lot of the things that we talked about here in this three-part series. So Dr. Vody Bauckham, Ethnic Gnosticism, Cultural Marxism, Racial Reconciliation. I've got the YouTube links for you here. I've also got the statement on social justice and the gospel. This was something that was really floating around a lot of the reform circles and those types of things. It's an interesting read. And then I also have an article that I talked about earlier from the Heritage Foundation. It's how welfare undermines marriage and what to do about it. So that kind of undergirds some of the things that we talked about there. Guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us five stars. Take a quick second to do that and a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2020 and the early part of 2021. So if you want me to come speak at your men's event, at your church, at your company, on your podcast, whatever, hit me up. The email is info at undaunted.life, I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Right.